Good morning. As everybody always says when they first get up here, I am John Scans. I'm, uh, I'm one of the facilitators of the 50 plus group. That means I don't lead it, I just kind of keep them going and help them to get going. And then they take off from there. Well, as we are in the book of Judges, we are coming to a place of, well, of endings. I myself am coming to the place of ending, actually. At the end of November, I am retiring. That's what I do. I go, yay, myself. <laughs> now, that doesn't mean I'm not going to be doing something else after that. It just means that that part is ending. And when you really think about it, there's a whole lot of things in life that are endings, aren't there? We're coming up on the ending of a what? School year? We're coming, oh, yes. <laughs> We're, you know, there are a lot of endings. End of a school year, uh, end of a project that you're doing, maybe at work or, or still at school even, who knows. Um, endings are things that often we, 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 we think we want to just get through so we can get on to the next thing, isn't it? But the problem is, is that endings are really more important than beginnings, the reason why that is, is because you take what you are in your ending with you and yourself into that beginning. And so you, when you think, oh, I'm going to start afresh, I'm going to start new. No, you're going to start with yourself as you are, as you ended. So actually, the place where we grow more spiritually is not at the beginning of something, but at the end of something, or as we're looking towards those endings. You know, maybe it's an end, ending to a relationship. We had, we, we had uh, I, I was a pastor uh, for a number of years and, and before I became a chaplain, uh, a hospital chaplain. And uh, we, had a, we had a young teen who uh, we started calling the, the uh, dating evangelist. You know why? Because every single girl that he dated, he brought to church. And he treated her so respectfully and in such a good way that they wanted to come back to church. To the point where every single one of his girlfriends, and he had quite a few, got saved because he brought them to church. And then when their relation ended, strangest thing in the world, they, stepped, they kept on coming to church. You know, usually when relationships end, you kind of distance yourself as far apart as possible. And all the girls that he dated were friends after that. Because he knew how to end things right. There's all sorts of things that end in our lives. Or that we can look towards coming to an end in our lives. And it's in those points in time that we have the greatest opportunity to grow in our spiritual lives. We tend to look forward to beginnings, but really we should look forward to endings. Not that we're trying to create them, but you can see when they're coming. Usually. So as we look at 
Gideon's life some more today. And we think about Gideon and his life ending. Let's take time to to really consider what it is that God is trying to say because there are actually two morals in the ending of of Gideon's life and his son's life that are told to us here in the Bible that speak about endings, not in a good way, but for our instruction that we might find our endings in a good way. So let's pray together first and ask for God's blessing. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just ask for your blessing upon your word now this morning as we come together and look at a very turmoil time in the life of Israel, in the Hebrews' life, even before they were a nation, Lord. We just ask, God, that you might help us understand what your word, your spirit is saying to us individually as people. For we come from very different backgrounds and very different places. And even this morning, there are different things going on in our hearts and in our lives that we need your help with. You have brought us here today in this place that we might learn from your word what we need. That we might be blessed. That we might have peace. That we might have excitement, not just in our beginning of things, but in the endings also. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we've been studying the last couple of Sundays the life of Gideon from the book of Judges. Right? This means yes. This means no. And if you don't, if you give me blank stare, I'm going to talk about it some more and it'll take a lot longer to get out of here. Okay? So, first off, we saw Gideon at the very first part of his life in chapter 6 having a very unsure start. Didn't we remember he was threshing wheat in a, in a hidden place? And uh, then when God came to him and talked to him and, and called him uh, to, uh, to go and uh, throw off the Midianites who were oppressing them and get rid of them, uh, he wasn't so sure about what God was saying. And so he put out that fleece, remember? And he said, Make the, let the fleece be wet and the ground and around it be dry. And then he said, well, I, after God did that, he said, I'm not too sure. Do it, do it the opposite way now. May, may the uh, ground around it be wet and the fleece be dry. You know, and then, and then when he said, okay, I guess it's really you talking to me, God, and I guess I really need to do this because I really do want to be on your good side. Then he he went and uh, when God told him to tear down the idol that his father had uh, and, and was worshiping at and the like, he wasn't very confident about that, was he? Because he went at night and he tore it down at night when nobody could see him doing it. So he had a really unsure start, but then he got pretty confident, and he, we see that he had a confident victory as he followed what God called him to do, right? In chapter 7, we went through that last Sunday. You know, God had a whole mess of Israelites gathered together and said, too many, and he whittled them down from 22,000 to how many? 300. 300. And he did that, he said, so that you don't think that you're doing this on your own strength. 
And to make the point even more pointed, you know what else he did? He said, now what I want you to do is I want you to take a trumpet and a torch, cover it with a bowl, but at at Gideon's uh, uh, signal, break the bowl so that all the torches are seen and blow the trumpets. So you got a trumpet here and you got a bowl here, right? Remember? Where do you put your sword? No sword. Can't do anything with a sword. And what struck me when, I really appreciated the sermon last Sunday because what struck me when he was talking about that was that here's 300 people surrounding how many? Anybody know? Well, the Bible tells us that they killed 120, or no, not not they killed, God killed 120,000 soldiers of the Midianites. So they're camped, 120,000 plus are camped in this valley, and 300 people are surrounding them. Do you know how much space it takes to camp 120,000? Which means every single one of those 300, and this is what struck me for the very first time. I preached this before. I've read it a whole mess of times, but I never thought of this before. They must have been standing at least two or three football fields apart from each other. With nothing but a trumpet and a torch. Something to make a big noise with to let everybody know where you're at. And a torch to show you and guide the way to where you're at. And you're standing by your side. By, excuse me, you're standing by yourself. Standing by yourself. It wasn't just Gideon that had a confident victory. Every single one of those men had to have confidence in what God was about to do. So much so that then they, the 300, chased 22,000 uh, 22, soldiers and went with their swords and killed them. Even though they were exhausted from chasing them, it says. Gideon had quite a confident victory, I tell you. It was, it's an amazing story. It's the one that pictures are drawn of and people, it's one of the, you know, the good kid stories and the like. The trouble is, is that most people don't want to talk about Gideon after that point. Because in chapter 8 and chapter 9, we are then told not so much about Gideon the judge. It's no longer a story about a judge. It's a story about a father and a son. Gideon and one of his sons, Abimelech. And that's what we're looking at today. It's a story after the great victory of Gideon. The high point of his life actually happened at, you know, right after that in chapter 8, verse 22 through 23, where it says, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your sons, and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you, The Lord will rule over you. That's the high point of Gideon's whole life. When he realizes that God Almighty should be the only one who sits on the throne of our lives. But then, Gideon falters. In the next moment. 
For when we get confident in, in God, that is the point in time when we are closest to denying Him. That is the t- point in time in which we are the closest to th- be thinking that we are doing what just happened on our own, with our own strength, with our own ability. God caused the army, the 100, uh, 120,000 uh, Midianites, to fall on each other and kill each other when Gideon had the trumpets blown and the lights go on. But in the next moment, he thought something to the effect of, ah, we can do this. We've got the strength. we got the power. And they started chasing after the Midianites. Now, that wasn't wrong to chase after the Midianites necessarily. God had told him to go and conquer them. But he did more than that in that chase. And you can read about it in Judges. We don't have time to look at it today. But he did more than that in that chase. He called some people to him to say, Hey, come and help us uh, uh, destroy these, uh, th- this army that we're after. And the people said, Who are you? You haven't conquered them yet. We're not going to take a chance. And so Gideon said, When we come back, I'm going to take thorns and thistles and I'm going to beat you with them. And he came to another place and called for those people to come and help them. And they refused just the same way. And he said, when I come back to this place, I'm going to tear down your tower, your fortress. Even though God had not told him to do that. In fact, that's a fascinating study, if you want to do it sometime, is is study what did God tell Gideon to do for sure? And what did Gideon do that God never told him to do that maybe God didn't really want him to do? But we don't have time for that now. What we have time for now is to look at the and that comes after that great statement of Gideon, that high point. In Judges chapter 8, verse 24 through 27, it says, And Gideon said to them, so he continued to talk. He first says, God should be the only one who is king. And then he says, Let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. For they had golden earrings, talking about the Midianites, because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw it in at the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. Now, a shekel can be either an amount of money or it can be a weight. Here it's a weight of money. So it's 1,700 shekels of gold. Now, just to give you a perspective of how much that was, in just a little bit, we're going to see somebody else who gets 70 shekels of silver, which is not as valuable as gold, and with those 70 shekels of silver, he hires an army to help him. And this is 1,700 shekels by weight of gold. And it goes on to say, besides that, uh, besides that, the crescent ornaments and the pendants and the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were around the necks of the camels, 
And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his family. So he asked for all this gold. He asks for and gets all the royal garments, all the emblems of of royalty and of kingship that are on the camels, that are on on the necks of of his, his warriors and servants and the like. And Gideon uses the gold to make an ephod in a city and puts it in a city. And that ephod becomes a snare, it says. Not just to Israel, which we'll find out will happen, but to Gideon's family and to Gideon himself even. Now, let me just remind you real quickly. Do you remember the law of Mo- in the Law of Moses what God said that kings should not do? Well, let me remind you. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25, it says, You shall not covenant, covet the silver or gold that is on them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it. And in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 19, it says, If you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. And it goes on to say in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5, listen. Seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present. What was it that Gideon asked for? The gold. The silver. What is it that Gideon did with that? He made an ephod. An ephod basically is a part of the priestly garment. It's not the breastplate, but it goes over the breastplate. And within it would be two two, uh, flat stones that would be used to get answers from God. And this is something that God set up to be used in the tabernacle. Remember when they wandered in the wilderness before this? And where were they supposed to sacrifice to God and bring their offerings to? The tabernacle. And the tabernacle is not in the city of Gideon. What Gideon was wanting to do was set up a place of worship, not to worship Baal or or, or any other gods, but he wanted to set up a place to worship where God had not called them to set up a place to worship. To have people come to him and to his people and to his family, to his town. You know how Philadelphia is waiting for the Democratic Convention because of all the money they'll get because everybody's coming here? Well, get, get people to come to your town. You're going to make your town wealthier. God called the people of Israel to, to sacrifice at the tabernacle. Gideon tried to set up another place of worship so that he could receive and be the go-between between people and God. Be a priest, the high priest actually, because only the high priest wore the ephod. And even though he did not wear the ephod, he had it in his city so that people would come to it and to him. And it became a thing of worship. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 8, it says, You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Doing things their own way, in other words. Because, you see, when you think the throne is empty, the throne of your life, it never really is. If you don't put God on the throne of your life, you will put yourself without even knowing it. Just like Gideon did. Gideon was following God until he said, and, and then he let his own desires, what he wanted. He wanted to look good. I'm following God. But I also want this. They were also told in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 16 through 17, the king must not acquire many horses, wives, or excessive silver and gold. In just a few verses, we're going to see that Gideon had how many kids? Seventy kids. Why does it say there? Because he had many wives. In other words, Gideon wanted to say, God should only be on the throne of our lives. But I want to look like a king. He took the robes of all the kings of Midian. He took all the symbols of kingship off the camel's necks and the servants' necks and the, and, and the people's necks for himself. And he multiplied, multiplied to himself wives, even against what God had commanded. And he didn't just take a little bit. He didn't just sneak it. He asked them to give it. And they freely gave it to him. All of them forgetting what God had commanded. About not envying and, and coveting the other's gold. How much did he get? He got somewhere between 40 and 75 pounds of gold. And I checked this morning. This morning uh, the gold price is $1,275.60. That means that he got from uh, just the earrings, just the earrings, not the other stuff, just from the earrings, he got somewhere between 800, more than $800,000 and a million and a half dollars of gold. A lot of gold. Plus all the royal clothes, plus all the ornaments around everybody's neck that uh, uh, signified that they were part of the royal entourage. And then he did something after that that really, this is not necessarily the best way of putting it, but put the nail in his coffin. In other words, the, the thing that really shows what he was doing here. Later on, when he had all these wives and all these kids, he had 70 kids. Besides that, he had a, a child by a concubine, and he probably had other concubines too. A concubine is a servant who is uh, lived with in a legal contract to have sex with, but is not uh, an official wife. It's a lower cat, a class. And he had a son with, with her, and he named her, uh, excuse me, he named him Abimelech. And you know what the word, the name Abimelech means? It means, my father is king. So, God should only be the king and the king on, our, on the throne of our lives, but I'm going to call my kid 
He's king. And that set the tone for the legacy that came out of Gideon's life. For the legacy is described to us in the person of Abimelech, his son. Why are the other sons not talked about? Why is the rest of the family not talked about? Because of what happened next. What happened next? We're going to jump through this one, go to the scripture. We're going to go to Judges 9, 56. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Go back. I looked wrong. <laughs> Judges 8, 29 through 35, we're going to, we are going to look at. This is a kind of a summary of what has happened here up to this point going into Abimelech's life. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons, and Jeroboam is Gideon. That's just another name for him we find out later on here. Had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. And he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Jebusites. And as soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again. Well, we know it happened before Gideon died because it was happening during Gideon's life also with that ephod. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the balls and made Baal Berith their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam that is, Gideon, in return for all the good he had done to Israel. And so it then goes into chapter 9, and there's a whole chapter here then talking about not a judge, but just the son. Because this is a father-son story, actually. And we are told that Gideon's legacy was Abimelech. And like one teenager said in one of my churches, it reads like a soap opera. For Abimelech wanted things his way. He wanted to be king. Literally. Gideon was playing with the idea of being king and trying to take on the appearance of being a king without saying it. But that led right into his son, Abimelech, saying, I'm going to be king. I'm his son. My father is king. That's my name. I should be the king. And he went to his mom's city and his mom's uh, family and said, Isn't it better that I rule you? I'm one of you. I'm one of your family. Than to have those other 70 sons of Gideon rule over you? And they said, Of course. Yeah, you betcha. We'd rather have you. We'll get an in with you. And so they made him king, it says in chapter 9. And they gave to him 70 pieces of silver. And with that, he hired, it says worthless men, basically he hired mercenaries, 
hired army. And he hired them to go and capture the 70 sons of Gideon. And he brought them together and it says that he killed them on one stone, which means that he executed them in front of everybody. So Gideon, the one who would be king but wanted to pretend he wasn't going to be, grew a son who killed all his other kids, except for one, the youngest one, who then cursed them. And you can read about that. And like I said, it reads like a soap opera. And God brings that curse about. I mean, uh, things like uh, uh, somebody's talking against him, against Abimelech. He hears about when he's reigning as king. And so uh, the, uh, he, he goes and he uh, gets a, his army and he goes and, captures the, goes and captures that city and kills all the people that were talking about him. And he kind of goes and coots with the head of the city to do this. And they work out a plan uh, of how he can uh, kill the people that are disrespecting him. And most of his life is, is really a life of Abimelech's life, is a life of killing people because he, he has another city that um, doesn't, doesn't like him. And there's a big tower in the city and, and so he takes his arm and he goes against that city and everybody goes up into that tower. There's a thousand people in that tower and he says, do what I do. And he gets a big bunch of straw and carries it up to the bottom of the tower and he, they all do that. They light it on fire and they burn everybody inside to death. Over a thousand people are killed just because somebody was saying something against him. Somebody else is doing the same thing in another city, so he goes and he's going to do the very same thing there, and he goes up to carry the straw up to the uh, tower, and there's a lady in the top of the tower. They're all holed up in the tower. There's a lady at the top of the tower who's got one of those uh, bigger stones that's about like this big that you use for grinding wheat and grinding corn and she throws it over the edge of the wall and it hits Abimelech right on the head remember the story if you read it and he knows that he's dying but he doesn't want to let anybody think that a woman killed him and so he tells his armor bearer to do what take a sword and kill him so no one would say that a woman killed Abimelech Death and destruction was the legacy that was left in Abimelech by Gideon. Because Gideon played with not truly having God on the throne of his life. Though he called everybody to do that and said that's the only thing that should be. And it says in Judges chapter 9 verse 56, it says, Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads, and upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. And that's the moral of the story of Gideon. God, in his justice, will always 
punish sin. And he puts a big period at the end of this because I'm actually supposed to talk about the next two judges also which are, you know, have like one and two verses is all that it says about them. And the, basically the only thing it says is that Tola, Tola and Jael, Jair, excuse me, judged Israel for 40 years. That's all it says. Why? Well, the only thing I can figure out is because how long did Abimelech reign as king? Anybody catch that? I didn't refer to it yet. He only reigned three years. Gideon, who was understanding and knowing and trying to have God on the throne of his life, but struggled with that and faltered in the end of his life on that point, still judged Israel for 40 years. And the two judges that came afterwards judged Israel for 40 years, but the one who wanted to be king reigned only three years. For the stories of the judges that we've been studying, we've been looking at, are stories of God's justice being played out. You know what justice is, right? Justice is getting what you deserve. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But it's also uh, the stories of God's mercy. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve in the end. God did not destroy Israel every time they were unfaithful. It's also the story of God's grace. Grace is getting what we do not deserve in the end. For when Israel cried out over and over again to God, when they were oppressed, what did God do? He heard them and sent a judge to free them from their oppressors. God's grace. The problem we have today with justice, mercy, and grace is that the world is trying to separate those concepts from God. All the world, remember the song? All the world needs now is love, sweet love. That's right, okay. Remember, that's 70s, isn't it? I forget, 70s, 80s, something like that? 70s, I think. <laughs> okay. That was just expressing what sin is trying to get us to do all the time. Sin is trying to get us to focus in on the concept of justice, mercy, grace, and love and forget about the person of God. Because look what the Bible says saves us. Does justice save us? No, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Does mercy save us? No, it just keeps God from zapping us right now. Does God's grace save us? Well, in a way, but not really if you go to the scriptures and you look at what it says specifically in Acts chapter 16, verse 31, where it says, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is not believing in a concept. It's believing in a person that saves you, according to the Bible. 
Because if you believe in a concept, you will define the concept. And then it could mean anything. Just look at the marriage laws that the Supreme Court has just, uh, a while ago, changed completely around. But if you believe in a person, you can't get away from what they say and what they want for your life and what they can bring into your life that we can't bring into our own lives. I came that you might have what, did Jesus say? I came that you might have life and have it abundantly. The word abundantly means the neatest, greatest, best life you ever could have. I don't know about you, I'd like to have that one. And looking back in my life, boy, God sure has brought a whole lot of neat, great things into my life as I've strived to live for Him, even when I falter. Because when you believe in the person of Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness. When you believe in a concept, there's nothing but arguing about the definition. and pretending that it means something different than what the Bible says. The end of Gideon's life was being ensnared by what he wanted that he pretended he didn't want. The ending of Abimelech's life was being crushed under the justice of God. Not because God wanted to kill him. Abimelech could have changed. Could have turned back to God at any time. But because he wasn't willing to let Jesus be on the throne of his life. Bow your heads for a second. And think about what endings are happening in your life in this period of your life. Or what endings do you see coming? Ending of a job. Ending of a project. Ending of school. I don't know about you, but I want to end well. Only by putting Jesus on the throne of your life can you have the peace that you seek and the freedom that you wish for. For he is the only perfect king who can bring about that which is perfect. Maybe you're here today and you've never considered or maybe you considered for a long time but never done it. Never asked Jesus Christ to forgive your sin and come into your life. That's what it means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
to believe in the one who died on the cross for our sins because we needed it. To believe in the one who said, for as many as received him, to them he came, gave power to become children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. You can do that even today. Right now in the moment. You don't need to know all what this means. Just ask Jesus to sit on the throne of your life and stay there. Believe. And you will be saved.